I'm so glad you could be here today. Uh, ice last week, cold this week. I wasn't sure what would happen this morning, but you have uh, exceeded what I thought. You guys, a little bit of air-conditioned weather doesn't bother you guys, so that's good. I'm glad you could be here, those that are here and others that are watching and listening today. I thank you for being connected to. I'm looking forward to March for a, more than one reason. But what I want to say today, and I've already said it two weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. I'm pretty sure it won't be quite as air-conditioned then as it is now, but I'm really looking forward to a focus on something that's been on my mind, really on my mind and my heart for several months as I've been thinking about the future of our church. And I'm really looking forward to a season of listening for what God wants to say to us as a church and challenging every person that regards yourself as a part of this church to ask God, what does He say to me? What does He want to say in my heart, in my life? Uh, what does God want to say to us this year? How are we going to get closer to God this year? How do we keep God in, in the right focus in 2022 with everything going on around us and uh, in our world? How do we keep close to God? How do we keep the right priorities? How do we know what the right priorities are? How do we know how it is God wants us to navigate these days. So we're going to be talking about what kind of church God wants us to be and who we are and asking those questions. What kind of church does God want us to be? We're going to start that series. Uh, uh, I'm planning on the first Sunday of March, and uh, I'll be saying some more about that as we get closer. But I really am hoping that everybody that possibly can will be here on March the 6th. If you're not able to be here, to be connected by phone or YouTube, but I just want to tell you that March 6th is an important Sunday to me as I think about our church and our future and, and what we're going to do, so I, I just want to tell you about that. Well, we, we return this morning to the book of Revelation uh, and God's awesome drawing back the curtain and letting us look into the end times. For a time, God is drawing that curtain back and giving us a privilege and opportunity to see things that are almost, almost indescribable, hard for us to grasp and put together. But God draws that curtain back here for us for a while, and the curtain's going to close again. We can come back and remember what we saw there, but as the end times come and the day of the rapture comes when all of God's people will be taken to heaven and the beginning of these things happen, then the curtain's going to be pulled back forever and will be opened. We're reminded that all that we have in reading the book of Revelation uh, is through the eyes and the recording of John. John, the apostle who God brought to the island of, of Patmos in order to hear the vision. You may remember we read many, many, really several months ago that, that uh, 
John was invited to step up into the doorway of heaven and look through, and when he did, he beheld all these things that we have in the book of Revelation. Just imagine how this man John handled that and convey, wrote it down, and we have it recorded here. Twenty-two chapters in the book of Revelation. Precious Revelation. We're coming toward the end of that. We're coming toward the end of our study this time. And having looked at this time period of the last seven years of human history, particularly chapters 14 through 19, describe a time period. I think it's best to understand it this way. The the chapters 14 through 19 describe a three and a half year time period. So all these things that are so important and heavy and some symbolic and some literal, both heaven and earth, spiritual things, earthly things, human things, all mixed together in these chapters are really describing three and a half years. And particularly in chapter 14, as we move toward chapter 19, we're looking at what I think is, it looks to me, the final months of human time. The events in chapter 14 through 19 are describing a fairly short amount of time, but a lot of stuff that's happening there. And because the things that are happening are so dramatic and amazing and thought-provoking and confusing, we look at this and sometimes we think, well, this happened over thousands of years. No, this time period, chapter 14 through 19, it looks to me to be a matter of months. It's a continuous uh, story of things that are happening day after day and week after week. The things that overlap also, different beings and creatures that are talked about in one chapter and then picked up again in a later chapter and then culminated in chapter 19. So when you read these amazing creatures and beings, understand that it's taking place within this certain specific amount of time. I think three and a half years. Last week, we ended with chapter 13, and we talked about in chapter 13 the two beasts that are described there, and uh, who they were, humans, leaders, probably persons who rise to leadership through human government and human means, and yet they are filled with satanic powers. They're called the beasts. The first beast and the second beast. The first beast seems to describe the person of the Antichrist. And most commentators believe, though the name Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation, and so I can't say with certainly, but everything about chapter 13 seems to imply that the Antichrist is that first beast. And then the second beast comes along. And we ended last week with a look at those two terrible beings and what they were, what they represented I'm sorry, what they represented and uh, who they were. And then as we closed out last week, we talked about the mark of the beast. And I won't repeat that today, but we talked about what the mark was and why, what it signifies. And from here to the end of chapter 19, the mark of the beast, that name is repeated many times. And every time it is associated with the worship of the beast, the worship of the Antichrist, the worship of Satan himself. So the mark of the beast and worship of Satan is linked together uh, in these texts and all the way to the end of chapter 19. Chapters 14 through 19 are continuous. They're overlapping. For example, the preparation 
for that event that we call Armageddon, the preparation is described in chapter 16, but it doesn't take place until chapter 19. And so you have these events that take place between, but chapter 16 mentions the word Armageddon, and then in chapter 19, the story of Armageddon is carried out. I want to start today and pick up with a description of the gospel that's being preached during this time. I know when I read this part of Revelation, it's almost like I don't even hardly see that or I read over it quickly. But when you go back and you read these chapters and you're looking for this, you find out that there's a continuous thread through these chapters of the faithfulness of the gospel to go out and be preached to people. It's not that people have no opportunity to get saved during this time. In fact, God has at least three different sources of continuous preaching during these chapters, during this time that is continuous, and people will have an opportunity to get saved. And we know from the context and drawing from different places in these six chapters that many, many people will come to faith in Christ during this time period. As I said, I don't think about that very much because I'm seeing the the gory details. I'm seeing the punishment. I'm seeing the judgment of God and the consequences of sin. But also, it's true that many people will come to faith in Christ. Many people will. Um, The horrific things that are happening may seem to drown out to us the reality of people coming to Christ. But perhaps, and again, There's different thought about this, but many commentators believe that this will be the greatest day of evangelism and people coming to Christ that's ever existed in the time of the world. We don't know that for sure, but we we do know that there are many, many people who are going to come to Christ at this time. There are at least three forces at work, or God's agents at work, simultaneously during this time period, during the reign of these chapters and even before forces that are bringing the gospel uh, during the reign of these two beasts and the Antichrist and the false witness that are uh, and these forces are proclaiming the truth and many on earth will respond to them let's look at who they are first of all it will be the two witnesses and we described them last week so I won't go back into that story of them, but for three and a half years, continuously, the two witnesses will be preaching the gospel. Somehow it will go to every corner of the earth, every language, every country, and people will hear the voice of the witnesses. How that happens technically, I don't know, but we get the, we get the, the sense when you read it that God says every person on earth will hear the voice of the two witnesses. I believe, I've always thought, and I think it's true of these chapters of Revelation, it tells us that every human being will have an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. I've said before that the book of Revelation highlights to me the truth that we have a choice. We're made with a free will. God does not impose on those that are living there any more than He imposes now the choice of whether or not we respond to Him or not. But every creature will hear, every person will hear the gospel and will have an opportunity to repent at this time. The first are these two witnesses that for three and a half years they go unhindered preaching from Jerusalem. People will try to kill them for three and a half years and they will not be able to. They later will be killed by Satan himself. God will resurrect them and take them to heaven. The second category 
is 144,000. I've used that term before and you've read it probably many times before, but who are these 144,000? And I'm going to talk about them in just a couple of minutes. But just to say that this 144,000 are evangelists. They are preaching the gospel through this seven-year period all the way to the end. So 144,000 evangelists that are scattered from different tribes of Israel. They're Jewish, and they're all around the world, and they're preaching the gospel in every country again. And then in chapter 16, we have the telling of three angels. And the message of the first angel uh, uh, is to tell the story of the gospel. Proclaim it to everyone on earth. Um, There will be many new believers throughout this time. So you have the two witnesses. You have the 144,000. You have the first angel told in this story and this gospel. And uh, there will be many, many new believers during this time that come. Would you go on to the next two uh, points on that, uh, please? 144,000, the first angel, and then many new believers. So, in this late hour of human history, again, I think we're down to a few months. Certainly within three and a half years, but it seems like it's getting very close by the time you get into these chapters. Um, in this, I'll call it the late hour, the, the 11th hour, whatever you want to say. Many people will come to Christ, but also we know that these people will be suffering in the midst of that. Those that come to Christ late at this time period will have an opportunity And God will give them certain promises and certain things. But He tells them that they will suffer. They will suffer because of the natural consequences of sin in the world at that time and these events that we're going to describe in a few minutes. So, those that come to faith in Christ in these last months, this last year and a half, many of them will be martyred. Not all of them, but many of them will be martyred. And there's three different passages that talk about those that are martyred during this time. It will be a time of suffering, but it also will be a time of protection spiritually for them, and we'll say a little bit more about them at another time. On chapter 14, verse 13, we read these words. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I've read this scripture many times at funerals. Not really in the context of of how it's written here. It's written here for those that are martyred and are suffering after coming to faith in Christ in this time period. Again, God said, many of them will die. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Looking ahead to these final months and these final days that God sees their suffering. He sees the martyrdom and it's coming to an end when He will make everything right. This describes the multitudes who will come to Christ during this time period. It doesn't describe the 144,000 for they have been promised by God, these 144,000 witnesses, that they will be protected from the suffering and the martyrdom that those who become believers during this time will experience. They are the evangelists, and somehow, for this time, God promises this 144,000 that they would be sealed somehow with the, the mark of God, very opposite or very 
much kind of on the other side from the seal of, of Satan or the mark of the beast. They will be protected from martyrdom and from suffering somehow during this time. 144,000. So you have two different groups of people described here. And sometimes when you read this, you're not sure, well, which does this apply to? But we're told that the 144,000 will live to the end of chapter 19, and then they will become a part of the throng of the new heaven and the new earth, and actually the thousand-year reign that will take place before that. They are sealed. They are Jews. They are protected. They are preaching, and they're scattered throughout the entire earth. And then there are the three angels that I referred to a little bit ago in chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 if you want to follow along. Listen to these three specific angels and what their role is. Chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear not. And give God glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. And so right here in the angels, we hear it, the choice people will have in this day. They will make a decision. Do I believe God? Do I respond and worship the God Almighty? Or do I worship the beast? Do I worship the dragon? Do I worship Satan? Satan worship will be at its all-time apex in this day. You either worship God or you worship Satan. Nobody's in between. It's one way or another. And this Scripture helps us to see that every man has a choice. Everybody can choose what they're going to do. The three messengers, the three angels tell the story. The first preaches the gospel. The second pronounces judgment on the, the wicked. The second and third are pronouncement of judgment on Babylon and then on the wicked who have worshipped the beast and followed, uh, taken his mark. And so you have God at this near end working to bring people to salvation, given the opportunity by free will, uh, but yet also pronouncement of the final judgment. The next description is of the harvesting of the earth with this symbol that uh, elicits probably for many who understand what a sickle is, the tool of harvesting. And, you know, back then I have a, a hand sickle at home. I, I keep it because it's a family thing. I really haven't used it in a while, but I have one. You know, and you know, there's the hand one like in this picture and you just see the worker going out and cutting down. That's kind of the picture that John sees in heaven of the cutting down of the wicked. They've had an opportunity and they, they've not responded. And 
So we have that part of chapter 14 describing describing the harvesting, the summary. This summary is of the final events of the last seven plagues and the last seven bowls leading up to chapter 19. Again, they will come very rapidly. We're not talking about things that take months and months and months to happen. We're probably thinking about things that take maybe days, possibly. Uh, Likely describing the last few weeks, likely. Maybe months of the end times, but listen to it and, and see what you think as you hear this description in verse 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. I've thought about, in my time as a Christian, and certainly as a pastor, is this a real picture? I mean, we know it's symbolic. But is this really the way it's going to be? It almost seems so wild that we might think, ah, it's some imagery, but it's not really going to happen. But I tell you, I am fully convinced the symbolism here is speaking to the reality of what judgment will be like. Uh, All I have to do to kind of make the step in believing in faith is look at our world. Look at the evil in our world. Look at the events of the last hundred years in our world. And have you seen, have you been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington or Jerusalem or anywhere else? Have you taken in the horrors of just that? I mean, that's just one thing. I mean, there's so hatred, greed, lying, broken children, deception. God hates evil. And He's bringing it to an end. Some day, He's going to bring to a close human history and all that came with His decision to allow there to be free will. All I have to do is go back in my mind to that day that I went to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I tell you, I just I keep sticking with me because I was there. I was there with my dad. Uh, I can't remember... Were you, you weren't with us on that one. Yeah, yeah. Debbie wasn't with us that, that day. When I look at those pictures of the Holocaust, I don't have any trouble believing chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Evil is horrible. God's wrath is coming. Whether it will look like what I think or not, I'm not sure. These two verses are the summary description again of 
of the end of the battle of Armageddon. Again, chapter 14, the end of the beginning of chapter 14 and the end of chapter 14 are pointing toward chapter 19 and what we're going to read about next week. It's the battle of Armageddon. The last recorded event of the end of time. They're described in seven last plagues and seven bowls of God's wrath. Again, they all come together here. The seven last plagues of bowls of God's wrath brought by seven angels quickly, consecutively, beginning with chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Go to that verse if you have your Bible, chapter 15, verse 1, because it's a key verse to me in this message today and, and as we think about this time period. I saw, let me read it again. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. I want to say how grateful I am for this verse in Revelation. How thankful I am that God says and John records and it's given to us today that God's wrath will come to an end. God is angry about sin. God is holy. God is just. We wrestle with what that means about Him allowing sin and allowing Satan. But He is angry about sin. There's no other way to say it. God is an angry God. And His anger will be poured out in these ways. His wrath will be poured out and His wrath, according to this verse, will be completed. I'm so thankful for that. Soon, it will be over. But it will not be over until the sickle is taken to the evil of the world in these final seven bowls. The first five bowls. The first five bowls, they happen again consecutive and quickly. The first one, the festering of sores on those who have the mark of the beast, who worship the image. Both. The description here, I could read that, is for those that have worshipped the image of Mark. Those two are always, I think they're linked every time, maybe but one in these chapters. The mark of the beast is linked to the worship of the beast. And the first bowl of God's wrath in these last days will be a festering of sores that will be poured out on those who worship the beast. The second is God will strike the sea and it will turn to blood and everything I think in the oceans if I understand it right will die. matter of moments or hours or days I, I don't know but can you imagine everything in the oceans? This is like a going backwards from creation. Everything in the sea will die. Can you imagine the stench? And then the third one, the river, the rivers and fresh water, the same thing will happen. Blood will come to it. And you can see how close we are to the end here. I mean, we are at the end. The sea is dead. The fresh water is dying dead. Then the scorching sun, the fourth angel, the fourth bowl of God's wrath. The scorching sun that will be so hot. People will curse. 
But it says they, they won't repent. Those that have turned away from God. I, I don't know how God's going to protect the 144,000 in this day. I, I don't know. That's something supernatural. If I understand the text right. The scorching sun. And then the fifth, uh, the fifth bowl is utter darkness. Darkness. It says it's going to strike first the beast. The Antichrist. The capital of wherever that beast is, whatever city, wherever, it will spread over the land. Utter darkness. You know, it's a reminder of the ten plagues on Egypt that came and went over a few days, maybe a few weeks. Remember against the Pharaoh, and every time throughout that story, when the when the plagues came on Egypt, it said that Moses went and told plagues. Pharaoh to let his people go and listen to God and obey God, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's going to be the same thing here. These are last opportunities for people to turn. The sixth bowl is the preparation for Armageddon. The visual emergence of something that's called three impure spirits. That it says that they will appear to be like frogs and they will come out of the the mouths of three creatures. Number one, the dragon, which is Satan, clearly. Number two is the beast, which seems to be the Antichrist. And number three would be the, thir- the second beast, which is called here in the text um, uh, uh, the false prophet. Impure spirits. I don't know exactly what that is, but it's nasty, ugly, nasty, horrible. Uh, and there'll be a visual, a visual way that people can see this. You see, up till now, I don't know that people on earth have been able to see Satan. I'm not sure. I know there's times when creatures have come and gone, but this will be the, the final revelation of who Satan is and the impurity and the ugliness and the nastiness. And these three impure spirits come up. And at the same time, it says uh, the river Euphrates will dry up. Again, symbolism. But some commentators think it's actually a very telling military thing that will happen when the river Euphrates dries up. Then you'll have a highway of transportation coming down from the north that will come into Israel into the, to the valley called, called Megiddo. And it will set the way, the place, for the armies from all over the world in their last military power and effort will converge on Megiddo. And chapter 6, chapter 6 is, I'm sorry, the sixth bowl is preparing for that place called Armageddon. No name brings out such visual horribleness and destruction than Armageddon does in our thinking and, and in, our, in our understanding of the book of Revelation and, and, and judgment. I want to read two verses. Chapter, 14, no, chapter 16, verse 14 and 16. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. These three spirits, the Antichrist, the false prophet, 
and the dragon, Satan himself, will by that time have complete control over the armies of the world and the leaders of the world. And I kind of get the picture that all of them will be brought into Armageddon, toward Armageddon. Uh, I don't know about all the populations on earth. I, I don't know. I know that the Valley of Megiddo is in Israel. Uh, the name Armageddon is only found in this chapter, in this verse, but the Valley of Megiddo is, is described throughout the Bible. If you visit Israel, you drive through Megiddo, and, and uh, it's a little bit south of Nazareth. Nazareth is up in the hills, and then as you get down about 10 miles out of Nazareth, as you have a, a valley that stretches, I think, about 40 mi- 30 to 40 miles. And that valley is called Megiddo. Uh, it's interesting, I read a quote about Napoleon, and, and he, I, I don't remember the quote, but he said something about all the armies of the world could meet on this valley and do battle, Some, something to that degree. It's a large area, and it's the area that we're told a final battle will take place between human, human armies and spiritual forces together. This will be the place where spiritual and human come together. Uh, Somehow, the demons, all these creatures we read about, and humanity will come together here. Somehow, and it, it, it's a time that the human time is coming to an end. And it will be a horrific, horrific time. Unlike any war or battle, the completeness of it will be so incredible. Megiddo is also a a large crossroads. Megiddo literally, if you look on a map, if you get a map of Israel in this area, you can just see it right here. You have Europe, you have Asia, and you have Africa. It is a crossroads to those three continents. And that's where we're told there'll be an army from the south, an army from the north, and an army from the east. Those three names are in these chapters. They're going to converge together. In fact, the Euphrates River, when that dries up, will open up for the army from the east to come specifically. Whatever that is, whatever military that is, but this will all take place as the world is crumbling from the scorching sun and the darkness. I don't know how long the darkness lasts. I don't know how long the scorching sun. But all this, all these forces are brought together at this time. And they're marching toward Armageddon. It will be the place of man's final acts of evil and murder and sin. It will be Satan's last horribly destructive attempt to take every human being to hell with him. It will be the end, Armageddon, of human history. We're told in the next chapter, the seventh angel, that's all the sixth angel preparation. The seventh angel is a massive worldwide widespread earthquake that will virtually destroy every city in the world. Certainly Jerusalem is, but it says that all cities or you know major or capitals will be destroyed. Um, 
So you have the events leading up to Armageddon, and then you have this catastrophic earthquake that I would imagine will kill most of the people on earth who are left, except those that are marching on Armageddon. You have the earthquake, and then you have Armageddon. Next Sunday, we're going to focus on that last part of the story, specifically Armageddon and the chapters before that describe Babylon the prostitute. Those are going to be the two things that we're going to focus on next week. I want to end with an illustration this morning. I read about it in David Jeremiah's book, the book of signs, and then I got to looking on, on, uh, on the internet. I wanted to see if I could find this story, and I did find it, written by a, a lady named Carolyn Arenz. Instead of uh, uh, reading the story, I'm just going to summarize it. But I have a picture here. Only if you're in the front are you going to be able to see it. It's actually on the next slide. Go to that next slide, would you please? Yeah, that's a picture on here. But the Smithsonian Channel, tra- uh, you know, I came across this. Largest snake in the world that's ever been found is being brought back to life by Smithsonian Channel. And it tells about this ancient snake that the, the spine was found. And I don't have a lot of information about it, but this thing, man, I can't believe how big it is. They're describing it. How big at some point in the history of the world there were large snakes. I mean, bigger than, bigger than really big. Well, anyway, chapter 20, verse 2, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan in Revelation. See, that's what's coming after Armageddon. But I want to end with this illustration that Carolyn Arends wrote about and I, I read in, in, uh, in Jeremiah's, David Jeremiah's book. And it's about Satan. And describes a missionary, uh, a story, a missionary story. It says that this missionary family was in their hut, I don't know where, and suddenly a large, very large, snake slithered into the hut and they were all in shock it was the most biggest snake they ever seen they didn't know what to do they were of course very much afraid and according to the story they they were able to get out of the hut and they left and they went to the neighbor and they yelled for help and the people came out and what's the matter there's this great big snake in our in our hut what do we do and one of the neighbors said, oh, I'll take care of it. And he got his sword, or he got his uh, machete out, and he said, I'll take care of it. And he went in the hut and chopped its head off. Boom. Right away, took care of it. And he went back out, and the family, oh, thank you so much. And they started back in. And they said, oh, no, you can't go in yet. You can't go in yet, because that snake, even though he's lost his head, will be thrashing around for a long time. Apparently, you've always heard the tale about snakes. You cut off their heads and you hang them and they still move around. But there's truth to that because of the, the nervous system and the blood of a snake that if their heads, many of them, if their heads are cut off, they will thrash around for minutes or up to an hour. Maybe some of you have uh, experienced that or seen that if you played with snakes. I don't know. But according to this story, they said, oh, missionary, you can't go back in there because that snake is going to thrash around. And so they had to wait outside their hut for, I don't know how long, and that snake just thriving about, great big snake, it was smashing all their furniture. It was just beating up that little one-room hut, just destroying everything, thrashing around until finally it died. 
Right now, I believe these chapters are describing this snake whose head has been cut off, that he is thrashing, and he has taken everybody to hell with him that he can. He is doing everything he can to destroy humanity. And if it's not for God's grace and the angels and 144,000 and the two witnesses, there would be no hope for anybody during this time period. But that snake in chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 is thrashing around. It's almost to chapter 19. We get to chapter 19. It will be over for all of eternity. That's the picture I see in these chapters. In chapters 14, 15, and 16. Thank you for being here today. This is this whole series in Revelation is different. It's incredible. It's amazing. It gives us a lot to think about. We live in a world today of spiritual uh, uh, spiritual battles. Your battles may not seem like... Uh, would you play something, Debbie, please? Your battles may not seem like it's all that big. But the same serpent who's described here is trying to catch you and hook you today as is in Revelation chapter 16. He will find a place of temptation. He will make you doubt your Christianity and your faith and the reality of God's existence. Just like in this day, the beast was deceiving the people and saying, there is no God Trust me. Take the mark. And you'll be okay. The deceptions that there is here now, but it might be different. And all of us need to be thinking about and careful that we're listening to what God is saying to us. That we're listening to what God is saying to us. Again, I'm afraid is still doing this. May God help us to hold on to Him. Would you stand, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You today for this crazy, heavy book of the Bible that so many times we probably pass over because we don't know what to make of it. But God, there's so much truth in it today. There's so much truth in it. Help us to have hearts that listen. God, that we... I pray that none of us will be here then I know that if we're, we've come to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, we don't have to worry about for us, but we certainly know that there will be people who will have the last day's opportunity to receive Christ. And they will. Somehow God will receive them into eternity. Help us to know how to hold that and think about that. God, help us to find what you want us to from this book and these chapters and this story, I pray. Thank you for all those that are here today. Help them. Draw them. And may we take God deep to our hearts the truth of who you are and what you want for our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless.